Hello, I'm pleased to be with you again with more audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. In a minute, we'll be hearing disturbing information. Bacteria, germs, bugs, if you like, from human faeces have been found where you really don't want to find them. 28% of the whole sample of 408 people um, had traces of faecal bugs on their hands. October the 15th, 2008, has been nominated as Global Hand Washing Day. We'll be hearing from scientists who are trying to prevent deaths from diseases like diarrhoea by getting more people to wash their hands with soap as well as water all over the world. But we start with news about sex. Up-to-date information on sexual behaviour and attitudes will soon be more available thanks to renewed funding of a massive survey that's already being done in the United Kingdom. The hope is that we can learn to reduce the spread of sexually transmitted infections and HIV, as well as increasing the satisfaction we'd all like to get from sex. And the new survey includes older people than ever before and the under-16s. I asked the study leader, Kay Wellings, what they've achieved so far. The National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles has been tremendously influential. It has helped the government to mount programmes relating to prevention of teenage pregnancy, uh, health promotion in relation to sexually transmitted infections, it's helped them to plan services and it's helped them to design campaigns against HIV. But more than that, it's helped them to assess how successful those campaigns have been. Now, it's great to have ideas. You may come up with the idea of using condoms to prevent HIV, but it's widely known, for instance, that people don't use them, especially as there are many girls who have abortions in a country like the UK. So have there been concrete achievements so far? If you look at the graph showing condom use, there's a 50% increase during the 1980s. 40% of young women at first sexual intercourse used condoms before the 1980s. Come the AIDS epidemic, that figure went up to 60%. And more recently, when we thought it might have been going down, it was nearer to 70%. Now, our problem is that it's not 100%, but it's absolutely not true to say that progress hasn't been made. So what are you doing that's new in the latest phase of the survey that has now been financed? What we're doing in the most recent survey is extending the age group. We're extending the age group to 75 because more and more people in later life with increasing trends towards divorce, with increasing number of therapies for sexual satisfaction, more and more people of this baby boom generation are aware of their need and their, if you like, their right to uh, sexual lifestyles. They're not just the oldies and the wrinklies. And With that come some public health issues and there's no more reason for um, monitoring the sexual behaviour of the young than there is the old. What are the sexual health issues that you need to look at, for instance, in the older population? When we think about the older population, what we've got to remember is that many of them will start to be on medication during their 60s. They may be on medication for things like diabetes, for hypertension. Um, More seriously, in a minority of cases, they may be on medication for more serious diseases like cancer, more advanced heart disease. Now, many of those conditions 
in themselves have implications for sexual lifestyles, but the treatments most certainly do so, and very little is known about that. Very little is known too, especially in women, of the contribution of different factors to sexual satisfaction. So for example, we don't really know, after the menopause, whether it's simply an ebbing of the sex hormones that leads to less interest, or whether this is just a time of life when you know, young people are leaving home, or even the ones that are there are a bit problematic. People are tired, they've got a lot of responsibility with their parents and their jobs. We don't know exactly how to attribute um, a waning of sexual appetite during that time, and whether indeed pe people can be helped to realise their ambitions in that respect. Now, I think just about all of us would like good, solid information about sex, about uh, everything to do with sex, including health. But it's hard to get, isn't it? In the past, people have been put in laboratories and surely that changes everything. So what are you going to do that's new? We've worked for more than 20 years to um, encourage people to give candid responses. Now, um, people often ask me, don't people tell lies? And my answer is always, it's my job to help them not do so. So it's not a question of people being dishonest. You've got to provide the circumstances in which they feel comfortable. And they've got to feel that there's privacy, anonymity, and above all, confidentiality of data. They don't want to see their particulars splurged all over newspapers, obviously with any name attached. But what we've started to do, and what we did in 1990, and we will do again this time, is to use computer-assisted interviewing, so that the respondents sit with a laptop in front of them, and they answer their own questions when it's the more personal, sensitive ones, and they know that those are locked inside the computer, and only a number will get them out. Now, you've stated that you're going to look at the effectiveness of interventions. Could you give me an example of the sort of thing that goes wrong? I think many of us can remember feeling embarrassed at school when we were given sex education lessons, and surely that was, in fact, going wrong, because it should have been easy. Well, one of the things that our surveys did was to show that more than a quarter of young people have sex before the age of 16. Now, in this country, 16 is the age before which it's unlawful to have sex with a young woman. And because of that, in earlier times, there weren't the sexual health services for young women. Now, be partly because of our survey, which has shown this sizable minority of women really needing services, uh, they have improved. They've got a whole lot better. So the interventions would be some form of education? The interventions, and I use the word, it's a word that's used often in public health, but we mean, by that we mean uh, perhaps sex education, uh, the provision of services for young women, provision of contraception, provision of condoms, um, and uh, obviously beyond youth, information campaigns to enable people to select the lifestyle and the contraceptive method that is going to best suit them so they're not continually switching or stopping a method. Kay Wellings from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, if you don't want millions of children to die from diarrhoea and other contagious diseases... Always wash your hands with soap and water. Whenever you use the toilet, and do not wash your hands with soap. Your hands pick up things you can't see. Washing your hands with just water can't make them truly clean. You never know what you're feeding to your family. 
for truly clean hands. Always wash with soap. That's an advert that's been played in Ghana. And I really love the sound of the school kids. Always wash your hands with soap and water. Great music too. And it was done for a deadly serious reason, as Derek Thorne heard from Val Curtis. She's been working with Ghanaian and public health experts in the UK and around the globe. And Global Hand Washing Day is celebrated in 73 countries. It's not generally very well recognised, but the biggest killers of children in developing countries are actually the diarrheal diseases. Most of the money goes into things like HIV, AIDS and malaria. Um, But uh, diarrhea is the silent killer. More than two million kids a year die from diarrhea. And there's a number of things that can be done about it. You can certainly improve water supplies, you can improve sanitation, but probably more important than all of those things is to improve hygiene because diarrheal diseases pass from person to person via direct contact, via the environment. And if you don't behave in a hygienic way, then it's very easy for the bugs that cause diarrhea to pass from one person to the next and make someone else sick and maybe even cause their death. And when it comes to hand washing, I mean, what kind of evidence do you have for the the current habits globally? And obviously it's hard to generalise, but essentially, you know, how how big is the lack of hand washing that we have? Yeah, um, though people around the world mostly do know that hand washing is really important and know it's good for them, um, the figures that we have are pretty frighteningly low. Of course, if you ask people, do they wash their hands with soap? Yes, everyone says, yes, they do. But if you actually go and observe whether people are washing their hands with soap or if you measure whether they're doing it or not, you find that it's in the order of somewhere between 2 and 20%, um, often around 10%, 10 or 15%. Um, sometimes much less. Um, So, for example, the most important time to wash your hands with soap is after going to the toilet. Um, For example, we found in Ghana only about 2% of people did wash their hands with soap after going to the toilet, and similar rates in India. Of course, it's not just developing countries. Uh, People in developed countries don't wash their hands as often as they should either. So we found, for example, in a study in the north of England that only 43% of mums were washing their hands with soap after cleaning up a child's dirty nappy, for example. And of course, that that brings us on to the study results that you've released recently, which which relate to hand washing in the UK. So so just kind of outline for me, what were you investigating in this study that that you've just put out? Okay, we were concerned that people in the UK aren't washing their hands often enough and that that's leading to all sorts of problems. For example, one in five people a year have a diarrheal infection and are off sick because of it. Um, And of course, there are all these um, major problems with the bugs that are the superbugs in hospitals, for example, uh, and in the community. And hand washing could help dramatically to reduce those um, problems with those illnesses. So we wanted to just get a snapshot, really, of whether people were washing their hands, whether hands were clean. Um, And we thought maybe we should have a look in different locations in England. And we thought we'd have a look at the normal population, if you like. uh, Previous studies have looked, for example, at kids in school, or they've looked at uh, hospitals, or they've looked at um, daycare facilities. Um, We thought we'd just look at commuters. Um, So we decided we'd try and get a snapshot of how dirty hands were of commuters throughout England. So you went to a number of different cities around um, around England, Cardiff, London, Newcastle, um, and some others as well. And uh, so what were the key findings? First of all, we were absolutely flabbergasted by how often 
bugs were found on people's hands. Now, these are bugs which probably come from feces or they come from the environment having come from feces. Um, they're bugs like an E. coli and Enterococcus. They don't actually make you sick, but they show that people have been coming into contact with human wastes, human feces, and it's been getting on their hands. 28% uh, of the whole sample of 408 people um, had traces of faecal bugs on their hands. And otherwise, I mean, did you find any variations within that, you know, men versus women and so on? Well, when we first looked at the data, we were really surprised to see that from the north to the south, there was a big change. So hands were cleanest in the south, with about 13% having bugs isolated on them. And in Newcastle, I'm afraid, 43% of people had bugs on their hands. So there's this very big north-south difference. Um, and we really puzzled over that. And then we had to look at the detail of the figures. And what we found was the women tended to have equally dirty hands wherever they were, in the south or in the north. Uh, it was in the north that the men had really dirty hands. And in the south, the men had much cleaner hands. So more than 50% of people, of men in Newcastle, had faecal bugs on their hands. And um, as regards professionals working in the UK uh, within public health, I mean, does this have particular implications for them? Does it, does it just kind of raise the issue of hand washing at this important time? The importance of the study really is just how shockingly bad hand hygiene is in the UK. Uh, there's an awful lot of work to be done, both amongst healthcare workers, amongst commuters, amongst teachers, amongst all of us who have anything to do with children or, or anybody who might be vulnerable to disease. We all ought to be doing better about our hygiene. Valerie Curtis from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and her colleague Robert Onger explained just why it's so difficult to persuade people to wash their hands after using the toilet. <coughs> Obviously there's been a long history in health promotion trying to get people to change behaviour and in many cases they've used sort of rational arguments and you know, you shouldn't smoke because it's going to kill you when you're 85 years old with uh, lung cancer. And the people who have been convinced by that kind of argument have changed their behavior probably. So the people who remain are those who aren't so readily convinced or, or don't essentially value their future life uh, enough or recognize the, the connection between what they're doing right this minute and um, the likely health consequences to them down the line. One approach that we're kind of taking now is to focus on the discussion disgusting aspects of having dirty hands um, because that is a clear and present danger that people can recognize and react to. Um, but then there are also kind of longer term motivations uh, to, to raise a healthy child. I mean, mums are, you know, they invest everything in their children and children are uppermost in their minds. Robert Onger and Val Curtis says that more psychological approaches that harness our natural wishes to be clean, avoid disgusting things and to protect our children are the ones to go for if you want to improve hand-washing rates all over the world. If disgust is what would make people wash their hands with soap, how do we turn that disgust idea into a dramatic television ad, for example, that will shock people and make them feel they want to wash their hands? So... What the ad agency came up with was the idea of a mother coming out of a toilet and you see on their hand a sort of red stain that, that, that's just been stuck there by, you know, sort of by adding it, by using cartoon methods. Um, but then you see a mother feeding her child and you see that the food that the child is eating, that stain has been transferred to that food. The ad doesn't once mention bacteria or disease. It doesn't need to. All it needs to do is for the mothers to see that, yeah 
something from the toilet has got onto the food for my child. And that really shocked mothers. If you sit with a group of Ghanaian mothers watching that ad, you hear <gasps> an intake of breath during the ad. It gets them in the solar plexus. They, they're, they're shocked and horrified by the idea that they might be doing that to their children. And it had a massive impact on, on their hand washing rates. They went up from something like 13% to 43%, at least their reported rates. Uh, so it was a very, very effective TV ad. It was seen all over Ghana. 69% of the kids in Ghana could actually sing the song from the TV ad. So it was very, very popular. So is this an approach that you might be looking to roll out to other countries? Well, the Global Public-Private Partnership um, is now working in 20 countries using similar sorts of approaches, using a clear understanding of behaviour, turning that around into modern, exciting, uh, not just mass media, but also activities in schools, activities in communities, uh, road shows and fairs, um, and then un trying to change behavior and then evaluating how much behavior is being changed. So it's quite exciting that 20 countries are involved in that. Uh, but beyond that, 73 countries are now involved in the Global Handwash Day. So hopefully uh, some of those countries will also take on board some of the things we've learnt from the Global Public-Private Partnership on handwashing. And talking to Derek Thorne, that was Val Curtis from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She's one of the key organisers of Global Handwashing Day. And I do hope it made you feel just a little bit queasy. <coughs> So, I'll wash my hands of that news story now and move on to imprisonment and the way it seems to be increasing the rates of tuberculosis. That's TB in the community as a whole, not just the prison community. In countries of the former Soviet Union, Martin McKee told me they've discovered a link between TB and HIV and rates of incarceration, which have been increasing recently. We have been able to show that the rate of sentencing to prison in the countries of the former Soviet Union is significantly associated with the overall level of tuberculosis in the population. Could it be just something that's associated by accident? We have looked at a broad range of other factors that could possibly be involved. We've looked at things like poverty, urbanisation, the existence of military conflicts and so on. And we find that none of those can adequately explain the effect that we see. They do have an effect, but we have taken them into account. Uh, for example, um, we can see that military conflict actually seems to reduce the reported rate, but that's due to a problem of the uh, surveillance. At the time, there is an association with the AIDS incidents in a country, uh, but again we can adjust for all of these factors. So being in prison puts you at higher risk of TB, but this has in fact spilled out into the general population in the former Soviet Union. Uh, we have known for a long time and from work that we have done in the school that there is a greater risk of having tuberculosis if you go to prison in the former Soviet Union. Uh, this is really now quite well established. However, most people don't go to prison. The question is whether those in prison, uh, the rates of tuberculosis in prison, have an impact on the broader population. Could I get you to extend this then to other parts of the world? What's happening there? Well, we cannot explicitly say what is happening in other parts of the world because clearly conditions in prisons vary greatly. There has been a long-standing concern about conditions in prisons in this region and in fact the uh, researchers from King's College London once described uh, the pre-sentencing centres in, in Russia as requiring the uh, literary skills of Dante and the artistic skills of Hieronymus Bosch fully to capture the horror of what they were seeing there. Now in the Russian Federation we know that prison conditions have improved 
improved significantly and we published a paper a few years ago looking at those improvements but elsewhere in the region there are still significant problems. And why is it that bad conditions or overcrowding cause TB? Tuberculosis is a a, a disease that is spread by uh, aerial, spread by aerosol, spread by coughing, and uh, therefore if you are in crowded conditions there is a greater risk of transmission. That has been known for a very long time. And HIV is an added complication in the mix, isn't it? HIV is a lethal combination with tuberculosis. HIV uh, damages the immune system, it damages the ability to respond to the uh, tuberculosis bacterium, and in combination uh, the death rate is extremely high. Now it seems that putting people in prison is quite in fashion at the moment. In many countries more and more people are incarcerated. So what might be happening and what ought to be done about this risk of TB and indeed HIV? We do of course have to understand that there has been a remarkable increase in crime in many of these countries and that is partly because of the loss of societal controls following the collapse of communism. So we that, that provides some of the background as to why the imprisonment rates are high. But also I think we would have some concern that there is not sufficient use being made of the alternatives to prison. Prison generally does not work. Uh, There are many community punishments which can be more effective in rehabilitating those who have offended. Now you've been talking about the Soviet, the former Soviet Union and the data you have from those countries, but what about other parts of the world because prison populations are increasing in many, many countries? Prison is generally not a solution to crime and I think we see that in the countries that have the highest incarceration rates in the world, the United States for for example, but also the very high rates we see in the United Kingdom. Clearly there are people who do need to be locked away for uh, the uh, maintenance of public safety but often there is very little uh, attention paid to rehabilitation and to the re-entry of the offender into society. That is something that we would have a, a broader concern about but it is of course not directly related to this study. Martin McKee of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Just recently Britain's National Cancer Research Institute held its annual cancer conference in Birmingham. And the opening talk was about the way your chances of surviving cancer often depend more on where you live than on which drugs your doctor can get approval to give you. Michelle Coleman told a packed auditorium of scientists and members of the public that the most important factors are whether you can get to a well-equipped cancer treatment centre in time and whether your disease is diagnosed soon enough. After his lecture, I questioned him about the data he has on this, beginning with evidence from Britain where they found there's a survival deficit. The National Health Service has been available free at the time of use to every citizen of the UK for 60 years, since 1948. And uh, cancer care is no exception. There is no charge for access to the National Health Service. And I think probably uh, in 1995, when the first international comparison of cancer survival, the Eurocare study, was published with data from 12 countries, including England and Scotland, two of the four constituent countries of the UK, Um, The fact that survival in England and Scotland was lower even than the average in uh, Europe, never mind than the best, was something of a considerable shock. 
that was a shock to clinicians as well as to politicians and it woke up the media and the public. And it seems that not all of the reasons, or, or indeed not many of the reasons, were things that clinicians were directly related to. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, clinicians felt, uh, in many cases, uh, personally attacked or wounded that uh, the survival deficit, if we can call it that, um, should exist because they felt, well, we're good doctors, we're as good as our colleagues in the States or in other countries where we know survival is high, so how can it possibly be that these data are right? Either they're wrong or you, the data are wrong or you've done the analyses wrong because it simply cannot be true. And it took a while, and I'm talking five or six years, before successive studies and other more detailed studies uh, were available to show that these differences in survival were not only generally real, that is robust to any conceivable level of artifact that was present in the data, but that they were attributable not just to the competence of clinicians, but also to the stage at which patients present with disease, to the efficiency with which the healthcare system is organized, to the accessibility of diagnostic equipment such as CAT scans and MRI, whether or not there is enough radiotherapy equipment around, all of those particular examples were eventually shown to be uh, short or defective in the UK. And it has taken a very substantial program of investment and indeed recognition of the problem as well as the political will to resolve it to uh, approach some form of redress. We now have uh, a national cancer plan. That was published in 2000 and implemented more or less immediately. And it was not the first. Denmark, I think, uh, claims that uh, uh, right. But it was one of the first, in a, certainly in a major country, to have a systematic national planned approach to cancer control, much more than just treatment. And to cloud the issue still further, here in Birmingham, we heard a poignant question from one of the audience who has cancer, recurrent ovarian cancer, she wants a particular drug uh, that's been publicised. And now, according to you, many drugs are publicised and these might not be the best things to be publicising. Well, um, I'm certainly not uh, against uh, drugs in general or the pharmaceutical industry, um, but I think one needs to recognise what the data tell us about the most important influences on outcome. And my reading of them is that early diagnosis, optimal surgery, as well as access to radiotherapy, including also chemotherapy and drugs in general, um, are all important, but that uh, early diagnosis for most of the epithelial malignancies, such as breast or bowel or lung cancer, um, which uh, together uh, alone account for something like 50% of all the malignancies in the UK and most Western European countries, that those approaches to management of those uh, uh, malignancies are at least as important and probably more than the, any specific drug which will offer uh, an extension of life at a fairly advanced stage of disease. So in short, we're not talking prevention here, um, we're talking organizational approaches to the delivery of optimal care that go well beyond simply the availability of a specific drug, which given the cost of these drugs and given the restrictions on health budgets, we have to remember all governments have to undertake some form of evaluation, including not just efficacy, whether they work, but cost effectiveness, that is, whether they can be seen to provide acceptable value for money. And you have recently published the Concord study looking at breast, colorectal and prostate cancer outcomes in a number of countries comparing rich countries with poor countries. What did you find in that study? 
A very wide range of survival across 31 countries worldwide, including the USA and Canada in North America, but also Cuba and Brazil in South America, Japan, Australia, uh, Algeria from uh, Northern Africa and a number of European countries. Um, we discovered very wide ranges in survival, typically low, uh, the lowest in Algeria and often in Brazil, uh, but also in the poorer Eastern European nations that were able to contribute. We also found substantial differences in survival between blacks and whites in the USA. That's not news, but this study was able to show that that pattern was held true, if you like, across 40% of the US population, whereas only previously about 10% of the US population has been covered by those data. And from your analysis of the Concord data, what do you hold to be the principal reasons for these differences in cancer outcome? Well, uh, I need to be cautious in, in answering that question because our data were limited. We were conducting the first worldwide study of cancer survival using individual tumor data for cancers of the prostate, breast, and large bowel, colon and rectum. And we were using only limited data sets from 101 cancer registries worldwide. We haven't yet had an opportunity to carry out detailed studies into those data. So we were looking overall just at the differences in survival from those cancers at one and five years. And I think at this point, it is a question of interpretation rather than analysis that suggests that much of the difference in survival between those countries is likely to be attributable to investment in health systems and healthcare resources more generally, and certainly not just in terms of access to drugs. Michelle Coleman of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He was talking with me in Birmingham, England at the 2008 NCRI Cancer Conference. And that's all from this edition of Audio News. It's goodbye from me, Peter Goodwin, leaving you with a plea. If you don't want millions of children to die from diarrhoea and other contagious diseases... Always wash your hands with soap and water. Whenever you use the toilet and do not wash your hands with soap, your hands pick up things you can't see. Washing your hands with just water can't make them truly clean. You never know what you're feeding to your family. For truly clean hands, always wash with soap. Sao, sao, fa semina ya, sa me ya.